Hi folks, how you doing? I hope this finds you well. And I also hope that you have been able to get yourself to a cinema recently uh, because there is so much on offer at the minute. Also, if you've missed things like Oppenheimer and Barbie, they're still showing in places and they've had this kind of really nice uh, re-release type thing. I mean, most of them haven't even left the cinema, to be honest, with like little bits of bonus content, which is like win-win situation. I love it. Loads of people around at the minute. London Film Festival is starting at the end of this week um, and I'm going to be down there um, doing bits and bobs and grabbing people as they kind of fly through um, and hosting a few events, which I'm really looking forward to. I've got a bit of a, a female director trilogy, which I'll tell you about next week, just in terms of events that I'm hosting for great female filmmakers. So I shall feed back to you once I've actually taken part in the events because I've learned from my mistakes. I take you back to the talking head scenario. So I'm not going to show off or boast about things until they've happened. So needless to say, I'm very excited about the London Film Festival and I shall keep you posted on everything that takes place. Uh, but one thing I can tell you about is some of the brilliant guests that we have coming up over the next few weeks on the podcast who are already recorded. So I know I can talk about them. <laughs> But we're very grateful to people who take the time, whether it's in person or whether it's in Zoom, it's still taking time out of your schedule to come and talk to us. So I, I really appreciate it. And there's a, an abundance of great stuff out there at the minute as well. I'm actually recording this on Sunday afternoon and starting tonight, actually, on BBC One is a TV, four part TV show called Boiling Point. Now, there was a film called Boiling Point back in 2021, starred Stephen Graham. And this is the TV show that kind of follows on from that point in the film. So four episodes are available on iPlayer. And um, we're really excited because we are we've already recorded an episode with the director and kind of one of the creators of the show. He's called Philip Barantini. Um, along with the composers, both of the film and the TV show, Aaron May and David Ridley. And it's really interesting because Philip used to be a chef. So that's why there's so much truth in this story. Um, but that's coming an episode with Philip, uh, with Aaron and with um, David. So that's something to look forward to over the next couple of weeks. Also, there's a film coming out on Friday, um, which is called 20 Days in Mariupol. And you can kind of guess what the story is from the title of the film. Mariupol is a, a town um, in Ukraine which was heavily attacked and bombed at the start of the war with Russia and it's been documented by this, I mean just beyond belief how brave this guy was to, to stay and to film everything that was going on but he's a journalist and he really wanted to get the story out Please can you search this film out and watch it before we chat to the composer of the film, Jordan Dykstra, because I'm going to be totally honest with you. This is not an easy watch, but it's a necessary watch. I think it might be one of the most important films I've seen over the last few years in terms of the truth that it tells. It's a documentary. It's called 20 Days in Mariupol. So please can you uh, seek it out and watch it before we share that episode with you? Um, and then also uh, we've got a, I just recorded a great episode, a Top Gun special uh, with Eddie and Cecile, who you might remember joined me for a Mission Impossible episode. Um, and they are the editor and kind of music 
producer extraordinaire on both these films and it is a fantastic insight into how Top Gun Maverick was put together. So loads of great stuff on the way and John Carney as well talking about Flora and Son. But that was a very long introduction, wasn't it? But there's just so much stuff around. Our latest guest on Soundtracking was also one of our very earliest when he joined me to discuss his brilliant contribution to the Star Wars franchise, Rogue One. I love Rogue One for so many reasons and for a reason to love it more recently is because it obviously then fed us Andor, which I adore. And if you haven't heard my chat with Diego Luna, then head back to edithbowman.com and listen to that. Gareth is a fantastic filmmaker and he is back with The Creator, which he wrote and directed and is quite simply an extraordinary addition to the sci-fi canon. It's so refreshing to see something original. And it's hard to tell you too much about it, really, aside from the fact that it it puts a hugely compassionate twist on the classic battle between humans and machines and artificial intelligence. Don't read too much up about this if you haven't seen it already. Uh, but just to sort of put out there as well, please, there may be a few things that are uh, that reveal themselves to you about the film in this conversation. So I'm just putting that out there that there may well be a few spoilery things uh, in here. So just to warn you ahead of if you haven't seen the film yet. But the one thing that Gareth does is he really understands the joy, escapism and entertainment that can be achieved by making films for the big screen. The creator is, it's a unique motion picture for, I think, a number of reasons. It's, as I said, an original story and it was shot in the most inventive way, which you will hear more about in just a second. He loves cinema. He loves storytelling and he loves pushing the boundaries of filmmaking and you can really feel that pour out of the screen. Now, I've been lucky enough to see the creator twice and each time I feel totally enriched by the experience. He really has made something very special that marries the world of sci-fi with intimate stories and characters that you really care about. Now, the film is showing now in all of 91 view venues across the UK and Ireland. And you could even see it for £4.99 at selected view venues with the super saver ticket when booked online. What's not to love about that? For all details, just head to myview.com and get along to see the creator now. And so to the man himself and his movie, The Creator, which is scored by our old friend Hans Zimmer. And we'll begin with his cue, They're Not People. Good, thank you. Nice to see you. And you? I've got so many questions about this film. Okay. It's amazing. When I came out, I couldn't stop thinking about so many things. 
I felt so connected to the characters. I really cared about them. But I felt like I'd seen something new. I felt like I'd just kind of... Are you sure you went into the right film? <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. Um, so congratulations. It's, oh, thank you. It's, it's marvellous. We'll talk about music in a minute because music's brilliant in it. And there's lots of different ways that it, it kind of features and functions and, and appears. What was the seed for the story for you? Because the story is at the heart of this and the characters and the relationship. What was the start of this for you? Um, there was lots of different seeds. If you see the movie, this makes sense because it's in there. Is I was dry, it would just finished Star Wars and I needed a break. And we drove, we basically, my girlfriend's family lives in Iowa. So we sort of decided to drive there, which is like mm-hmm. a four day drive or so across America. And at one point, I guess I was... Uh, antisocial and I put some headphones on <laughs> and just started looking out the window and and we were in these farmlands it's the midwest and there's just like you know scrolling farmlands all the way to the horizon and and there was this factory in the middle of it and it to me it had a Japanese logo and I thought oh, I wonder what they're building in there and I, and I started thinking because my way my brain's wired I was like oh what if it's robots <laughs> and and then I was like oh imagine being a robot and you're in a factory and then you step outside and you've never seen the fields or the sky and you wonder what you'd make of it all and I just thought oh that's an interesting moment in a movie and then I just threw it away and carried on thinking and then it's like it tapped me on the shoulder and went oh what if they're trying to kill the robots and then I was like oh yeah that could work yeah, that'd be okay. fun. And then I threw that away. And then it was like, oh, what if this is like a lone wolf and cub thing and the child is the robot? And and it just kept coming and coming. And normally it takes um, months to kind of get lucky like that. Mm. And it all kind of, by the time we got to her parents' house, I had the whole movie sort of kind of mapped out. And I was like, oh, this is a sign that's either like really good or really bad film. I'm not sure which. There's so much kind of truth in it. You know, it's it's this kind of beautiful morph of nature and the world mixed with sci-fi you know in terms of these extraordinary breathtaking landscapes that we see and places and structures and things some of which you've created some of which are in the real world but you spent a lot of time kind of scouting and finding the right places I was interested in how much they fed into the story yeah we went to so basically we had to trick the studio into doing the film because it (laughs) you read the idea and you see the concept art and everyone's like well, yeah, we'd love to do this, but we haven't got $300 million, you know, and we're mm-hmm. not going to give it you to go and do what you want. And so... Why not? <laughs> yeah. And so I was, felt like, oh, we're going to have to trick them somehow. And so what happened was they give you a little bit of money. We're like, can we just have a little bit just to go location scouting? Mm-hmm. And no one can say no to that. So they give us some money to go on, like, what was technically a holiday <laughs> to Southeast Asia. And I snuck a camera with me and I went with Jim Spencer, who was the producer of Monsters, that first film I did. Yeah. And it had a 1970s cinema lens and I kind of shot a little short film. I don't know what you'd call it. And we went to like Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Indonesia, Japan, Nepal. And and the idea was is then cut something together with all these amazing moments and then get industrial light and magic to kind of reverse engineer. Normally you, you design all this stuff up front, but instead it was like, let's find what this crazy, weird, beautiful things are yeah, and then do the designs afterwards. And so we we did it that way around and it worked really well. It was really efficient. We showed that film to the studio and they knew how little money they gave us. And they're like, oh, geez, if you can do that with that, like, okay, we're in, we're, you know, and they greenlit the film. Because it's that, you do this clever thing as well and, and I'll, I'll put this out after 
the film's release sort of thing and there'll be a spoiler thing at the beginning for people as well. These guys haven't seen it. Have you not? No. Okay, close <laughs> your ears now, please. Now, fingers. You can't, it's fine. <laughs> You've checked the volume, it's fine now. But just the, almost like the way that you flipped their, their, their habitats in a way, in that the, the machines you know, live in the natural world, yeah. whereas the humans are almost in these space. They're, they're, you know, it's, right, that's right. a really clever thing, I think, as well, in terms of one of the greater themes of the story, right. as well. I don't know if that was deliberate. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, of course, it was deliberate. When I'm going to say it was really deliberate <laughs> and and really clever. I. That's the first time I've actually noticed that. You're right. Um, no way. Oh, it was wow. a consequence of just going to Southeast Asia. Like yeah. a lot of the places there that um, are stunning to film in are very at one with nature. Mm. And that's kind of the Star Wars thing is that you take, you kind of take the ancient past, spirituality, mythology, whatever, and you take the far future and you force them together. And, and if there's anywhere in the world that has that by default, it's Southeast Asia. Mm. Like you can go to these cities that look like something from Blade Runner and you take a left turn and there's a temple with a Buddhist monk and and I love that contrast. Like that's kind of what you're looking for as a yeah. filmmaker. You've got is it Nomad behind yeah. you. Yeah. Um, I I went on a, down a rabbit hole of listening to you talking about the film in various places, and I heard this amazing story about where the inspiration or part of the inspiration for that came from, which was a visit to Area Fifty One. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You want to go there? I, I definitely want to go there in a car with a great soundtrack playing and kind of feeling like you're in a sci-fi film anyway. Yeah, is that kind of what it felt like for you, even driving there? No, we had <laughs> we had we had a really scary experience. Mm. It was basically me and Matt Alsop, who's a, a concept artist, and he yeah. worked on Godzilla and Rogue One. And I had promised him he was a big fan of that genre. Yeah. You know, if you want to say that. Yeah. And I am too. And we and we we always watch to death this TV show that's kind of a guilty pleasure called Ancient Aliens, right? Yeah. And and so we we're like, we're going to go to Area Fifty One. And I kept promising, and I never did it. And then there was this last opportunity when we were in San Francisco before we had to come to Pinewood to do Star Wars. And we, it's now or never. So we just hired a car and drove to Nevada, and didn't expect much. Pulled like basically drove. It's this place near this town called well, it's not even a town, a, a trailer park called Rachel. Yeah. And you drive off a dirt road. We didn't want to go all the way to the gate because we didn't want to get into trouble. So we parked about halfway down and we saw some little lights and things and we got very excited. It could have been helicopters. We weren't sure. And then in the middle and between the ground and the distant mountains, a a red square appeared, just switched on. And it was and it started moving towards us oh and God. we shat ourselves. <laughs> And we started, I was desperately doing a, a three-point turn, but doing it really badly because I didn't want to get stuck in a ditch. So it's like that Austin Powers, like 21-point turn. And then we were like, we became little gills, like where we were screaming. And then we drove, we drove off to the main road and started driving off. And as I was driving off, I saw a little glimpse of something, like, a, like a, it looked like a, a laser light. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Matt, did you see that? Matt, did you see that? And he's like, um, what? So what? And I was like, there's a fucking laser. And he goes, uh, I think so. And I was like, no, you would know. And I thought, did I imagine that? That was really weird. And then both of us, as we're looking forwards, this laser projected onto the mountain in front of us. And it was like this grid pattern. And it sort of rotated and flashed and then went off. And we absolutely shat ourselves. And and we got so scared. And we went over the top of the mountain. I thought, because I always thought they were doing war games, you know, where they're kind of tracking objects mm-hmm. and, and firing on them mm-hmm. and stuff. And so I didn't know what it was. And we went, we basically went down, drove for about, you know, I don't know what, 10 minutes, calmed down, pulled in, 
and stopped and looked back and we were so like we managed to like talk ourselves down yeah. and, and and as we were looking back suddenly these headlights turned on and there was a car like a meter from behind us and it followed us the whole way and we just like like little girls again screamed and drove off <laughs> and we drove for about an hour and I just indicated to go off the road. The second I did, these car headlights turned on again that were right behind us. Oh, my God. And so they were following us with night vision. And then when we got to the nearest piece of civilization, there was a gas station, basically, the first one for like an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, a cop car was waiting. And I was like, here's where we get arrested. And the cop car just waited. And then the, the security car that was following us, they kind of like, as if they knew each other, the security car turned around and the cop car then uh, turned around. And we we had two. We were staying in Vegas, and we had two rooms, but we stayed in the same bed because <laughs> we were like and we cuddle. <laughs> yeah, we spooned because <laughs> we were like we were like one of us is going to get arrested wow. tonight, and we won't we won't know what happened to them. We were really paranoid. But um, that's stuck in your head, that thing, because that yeah. you said that that's then that's kind of that because so, it's terrifying in the film. Yeah, so Nomad, the laser that comes down is kind of based on Area Fifty One story. So thank you, you were sorry government. to taking you back here. <laughs> Yeah. Um, in that car, though, on your road trip, I imagine you were listening to music because yeah. in the film, every time we're in a vehicle, there's music playing. Yeah. And it's great because you're immediately as an audience, you're kind of like, you're almost like, oh, you know, as you would if you're in the back seat, you're kind of like listening in or turning yeah. it up to something. It's a brilliant way of bringing us into those vehicles and on that journey, wherever it's going, whether it's the bus or whether it's, it's brilliant. It's such a great choice. I, I mean, I... I find it hard to drive and not have music on. Like <laughs> awkward, otherwise. Yeah, I don't have to talk to someone. I don't want to do that. What are the choice, the decisions though, in terms of what you play in those situations? Because you know, with the film, you've got this great thing where you have got these these brilliant needle drops. You've got one particular track that features a few times, and then you've got the score, which is just is extraordinary. Um, and so, but they marry so well and they fit so well together. Yeah, so Gabe was our music supervisor. And in, in Hollywood, right, or in movies, you have a music supervisor and they get a front end credit. So they get, they get up there with the writer and, you know, uh, the producers and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I always, you always think, what did they do, <laughs> right? They made three phone calls. How come they get this massive credit? And I used to kind of have that feeling a little bit until Gabe. Because okay. Gabe, like, came along and really elevated this film. And he was amazing. And we um, basically um, set him lots of little challenges. And one of them was I wanted the film to have this 1970s vibe to yeah. it. You know, because weirdly the film has that kind of retro-futuristic thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, try and find Asian music that we've never heard before, as if there was someone who, like a band that was like the Doors in Asia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he found this amazing band called Golden Wing, that I think is from Indonesia. Yeah. And he played me this album, or he sent it to me, and I thought it was fantastic. And so we use their music a fair bit in the mm -hmm. film. And I really don't know, have a clue if they know about this movie. I assume to get the rights, somehow someone knows. Yeah, but or if still alive. Yeah, it's, you know. and I'm half like, I wonder, just wonder what they make of it all, like... Like, it's going to be interesting. I really wanted to kind of meet them at some point. It's so um, lovely that you've brought their music to a world stage, though. Yeah, I feel like, I, this is what I said to Gabe. I was like, you know you've made it as a filmmaker, and I don't expect this to happen ever. But if I ever hear Golden Wing in a commercial, right, <laughs> then we, we change the world. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, that's when you know you've made it, when it becomes this pop culture thing. Um, which ain't going to happen, but I would love it for them. Film's not out yet. Give it a chance. Come <laughs> no, on, do no. you know what I mean? Hanya ini yang ku 
we're with Claire de Lune. Yes. Talk to me a little bit about that well, we, piece of music and why. Yeah, well, we had... I mean, can I spoil it? This is after the film's come out. I won't yeah. spoil it, but I'll say something yeah. that might... That's essentially... So we started by using that in the end credits. Mm-hmm. What happened is we found that when we screened the movie, we tried lots of things for the end credits, and people just needed a moment. We did all sorts of things... People just need you needed like to be in a spa at the end and just give everyone like a minute or two to gather their thoughts and then leave the cinema. Mm-hmm. And and everything we tried was too too much. To me, I was stealing from ET. I feel like the end of ET is so such a perfect ending. And then this just simple piano with the theme comes on. Yeah. And it's so gorgeous. And I just wanted to have a simple piano and I don't know if it was Hank or Scott, but someone in the edit suggested that piece and I was familiar with it but I didn't know the name of it Mm -hmm. and and it felt pretty damn good and then we decided to use it earlier there's a I love this stuff I can say this it's early in the movie it's in the first 15 minutes there's um a nuclear bomb goes off in Los Angeles yeah and you see it on the tv like kind of how we used to seeing footage of like September 11th or something Mm -hmm. and it's this horrific event but all he's listening to is this beautiful piano being played And I love that contrast where, like, to them, this is normal. Like, they've kind of got used to it. They don't care anymore. All this terrible stuff that's gone on. And and I love that in cinema. That's kind of one of my favourite things. The, you know, Hans Zimmer doing the score for this. Yeah. What were the kind of conversations with the guards to what you, what you wanted for the film? You know, in terms of yeah. you know, what you wanted from him and how you saw his work, Mari, with all these other choices musically that you were having. You know, you've got this beautiful version of "Fly Me to the Moon" as well that's played on vinyl as yeah. well. And yeah, so we, you know, the problem is when you put a film together before you have the composer. You you steal music from other films and what stick did you it in. use as temp? Obviously, there was a little bit. There was quite a lot of hands in there, to be <laughs> honest. And and he had a golden rule. He said it as a joke, but he was like, I can't remember what he called it, but um, it was essentially the track that was um, Journey to the Line from Thin Red Line. He was he had a phrase for that track, and he was basically like, Don't use that track. And it was a joke, <laughs> you know what I mean? But. Everyone uses that track. And I, I, I was like, yeah, we won't use that. Don't worry. We're not going to be that sort of cliched. And then suddenly we, I realised we were using that track. And I was like, I'm sorry, but Journey to the Lions in the film.
And so he, he watched it, and he's the first person to see it, really, um, early in the, like, oh, wow. the edit. And the obvious thing to do is, like, hey, let's all do Southeast Asian music. Yeah. And I really wanted that. I'd always pictured the ending with more, like, Mozart-y, Requiem, Bach-type stuff. And he was really into that. And he suggested, like, choral and more religious style yeah. approach. And so that was great. We were, I mean, it, we were totally on the same page. And then the, the you know, the real key is just, I, I joked with him, like, I don't want poor man's hands, right? Which was my way of saying everyone imitates Hans Zimmer and the movies can often have soundtracks with like, through the whole film. Yeah. And because people imitate it and then they use it in poor, like cheap TV shows, yeah. it really cheapens everything. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I just don't want that anywhere in the film. Please, let's not do that. And I actually, I'd like it if, if people listened to this and didn't realise it was you, if they didn't know. And that's music to a composer's ears because... I had they, to look. Yeah, they don't want yeah. to imitate themselves, you know. And so the main important goal I felt the whole time was I don't care about the instrumentation. I don't care about how clever we are with everything. If you can play the tune on a on a piano and it's beautiful, that's that's all you need to like that's ninety percent of the problem. Yeah. And and he's very self-effacing. Like he basically will ask you, he says, You can only tell me two things, whether it's shit or not shit. <laughs> and and at the end he'll be like, shit, not shit. You know, as he plays you something. And so I don't know if he if he's just making it up, but he pretends that he can only play with two fingers on the piano. I'm sure he can't. He can do brilliant things. But he, but in a weird way, if you can do it with two fingers, then it's very simple. Do you know what I mean? You're not like disguising yeah. it. also doesn't have any of his music to hand so when you have references like you know it's like that track from interstellar or it's like that track from thin red line or whatever mm. it is he's like which one you know what i mean and you have to explain it and then he has to go on youtube and type it in and find like and then he gets gets the wrong version and <laughs> and and then he doesn't even pay for youtube so in the middle of this beautiful like goosebump inducing moment suddenly like this, from interstellar you've yeah got you suddenly get dog food advert commercial and you're like, let me pay for YouTube. Like, it'd be my gift to you, you know. And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not paying someone for my own music. And so it's, I love that so much. Yeah, and it was him and Steve Mazzaro was also did a lot of music on this, and mm. it was a dream because you know they'd also done Interstellar, which I think is one of the greatest soundtracks of the yeah. last few decades. I agree. I watched it again the other day actually. After watching this, I kind of I was flicking through and it was on, and I was like, literally. Paralyzed, mm. couldn't take myself away from it. It's mm. wonderful. There's a couple of cues that I really, really kind of resonated with me as well. And you've got that brilliant Radiohead track, and right. um, everything, and it's right place from um, from Kid A. But and that's a great choice. 
and I had to apologise to the person next to me for singing along to it whilst it was on just because it's one of those songs. But the way that that... What's the lyrics though? Go on. Oh, you I, make I, your own up? No, I found out the lyrics. Oh, did you? Because yeah, I just yeah. make stuff up. It's no, because I like... sing it in the shower all the time because of this film now. <laughs> and and for the longest time, I was, just, I was saying the wrong thing. What is it then? He says, yesterday I woke up. Is it pulling a lemon face oh, yeah. or something? Basically looking like you've eaten something sour. Yeah. Because he, he was not happy when they were doing OK Computer and touring it. Yeah. And it's some reference to that, I wow. think. Wow. I mean, I, do, it's like I just do a, tra- a train of consciousness. So almost like you just let the words come yeah. out whatever they are. Which and it's be... kind of better that way. Right? <laughs> I'm always doing that with lyrics. I'm always getting them wrong. goes into this beautiful cue in the film. It's got a, a kind of great journey from the song into a, a, an amazing cue, which is, um, it's really absolutely fantastic. And I, I think one of my favorite bits was when Alfie leaves the chamber for the first time. And that cue of oh, almost yeah. that experience of yeah. being free or in the world sort of thing that was a, a gorgeous piece that, of music that nearly wasn't in the movie there was like what the music or the scene the scene oh wow because um and it was the whole like i was saying it was kind of like the birth of the idea yeah and it just that lots of crazy things happen in the edit and you try a million experiments <laughs> and our first cut of the movie was nearly five hours so oh, we were trying love to, to see that no you don't <laughs> and so we were trying to cut out so much stuff and still make the film work and suddenly at one point we were skimming through, Hank was editing it, and Hank, Hank's, uh, I think, a bit of a genius, and he edited my two favourite edited films, which is JFK and Tree of Life. And, and so we were just skimming through material, and that, those shots turned up with M- Madeline, and just so you know, the way that was filmed, that was a break in between waiting for another thing to be set up. They were setting up some other some explosion or something and I had 10 minutes to kill and I was like Madeline do you want to just should we just walk around the field and so I was just walking around with her and telling her to stop and look back and all this sort of stuff and got all this beautiful material of her just exploring and then forgot about it and we carried on and suddenly we were in the in the edit and I saw this material that I hadn't seen in a while and I was like oh you know what that's supposed to be that's supposed to be the first moment she gets out and she sort of sees that has all this wonder of and Hank's like why is that not in the film and I was like, I don't know. And so he started cutting it together and trying to get it in the movie. And it's those one of those go you think, God, what would have happened if we just hadn't come across that shot? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many moments like that in a film that's just total random chance. She is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, the the performance is so tender and mm. beautiful, and that laugh mm. at the end is just 
oh my god, I was bawling my eyes out at the end. Oh, cool. Just, uh, it's just, I mean, how old is she? She was seven when we were filming it. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Where so. did you find her? She's from San Diego. We did a casting call around the whole world. Yeah. We had hundreds and hundreds of kids sending tapes and got it down to like, I watched, I don't know how many, 100 or so, and then got a top 10 and tried to meet all those kids. Yeah. And it's during the pandemic, so it's a little tricky, mm. but she was the first one in the room and she did this performance where she just made us all like want to cry. And I was like, this is too good to be true. Maybe the mum is tricked us. <laughs> and, and maybe she told her some really terrible news just before she walked in the room or something, because it didn't yeah. make sense. She, couldn't be, she shouldn't be that good. And so then we played a game, messed around a bit. And then I was like, hey, should we just try something else? And I just tried to see if I could get her to do something else like that. Yeah. And it was even better. And she left the room. And it's just one of those things you dream of where you go, because I hate these kind of movies where there's a really annoying child actor. Yeah. And it can ruin the entire thing. Absolutely. And so I was like, if we couldn't find the right kid, I didn't want to do it. And I was like, oh my God, that's her, you know. And spent the next six months paranoid that, that, that I'd get a phone call from the parents saying, we can't go to Asia for six months. It's too much, you know. Yeah. And it's a they, lot for a seven-year-old. It's massive. It's massive. I mean, you know, you have a teacher and everything, and yeah. she was doing all these lessons the whole time. You're only allowed to film with them for four hours. And so we... That puts a massive pressure on you and the production then as well. This yeah. is scale, I guess. Yeah, and you know you're only getting Maddie for four hours, but we had what we uh, we call her stunt double, yeah. Harrison, which is a boy, and he lived in Thailand. And and they. what was funny is they, they loved each other. Oh. And so, like, as, as Maddie would walk off, Harrison would walk on and high-five each other, like, like, you know, like going on to a, a football match or something. Yeah. And and they would both try things. So if there was a stunt or whatever you want to call it, they had to run or jump or fall. Yeah. Like Harrison would try it and then Maddie would try it and then they'd try and better each other. You know what I mean? It was like this like fun rivalry and they were really sweet. With the relationship that she has with John David Washington's character, did you sort of truncate their relationship or did, you know, whilst we were filming so that you, that could almost happen naturally as you were filming or did they bond before you started filming and stuff um we didn't shoot the movie in order it mm. was kind of impossible I bet, yeah. because of the logistics and and actors flying in and out yeah that was the goal but obviously it was not not reality it was really important that jd became her best friend and she's very shy like i even couldn't fully get into her little bubble like mm. she's she's super smart but quiet and shy little girl. And JD, like, basically somehow became her, like, best friend, big brother, to the point where you have those moments on a film set where an actor's in the zone and being emotional or something, and then everyone says, cut, they have to reset something, and the actor will walk away to get away from everybody mm-hmm. to sort of not get, you know, to sort of stay in that mindset. And as soon as he walked away, she would jump off the chair or the set. She'd run over to him and grab his hand and talk to him, like to try and cheer him up, like talk to him about some toy that she played with this morning. And instead of getting annoyed, he would he would kneel down next to her and, go, and get really excited about the toy that she was talking about. And it was just like, oh my God, like they're so cute. <laughs> and, they, and, and so they really, that relationship was really strong and, and they hadn't seen each other in a year and it was her birthday and they can't come to the premiere and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So me and JD took her to Disneyland and it was so sweet. They spent the whole day together and she was holding his hand, taking him on all the rides. And 
It was like man, the, yeah. I mean, all the I could spend days talking to you about the the kind of production design on this as well, and the creation of all these, you know, whether it's the 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 the, the flying machines, you know, because some of them are kind of you know spaceships, but they're you know whatever they are, to to smaller kind of details as well, sort of thing. Did the world have to be created before you finished the script in terms of you knew where these people were going to? You know, did you have it visually in your head a lot of it before you kind of had had the script down, or did they work in, alongside each other? No, you sort of have it in your peripheral vision. Yeah. Like, as in, I once, when I was a kid, looked at the sun like an idiot, and I've got a mark on my eye, or a little stain. Still. And just slightly, but I can't look at it. Like, because the second I move my eye to look at it, it moves. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, I can yeah. chase it around the room, never yeah. actually. And that's like design on a film. Like, it's there, yeah. right? You sort of know it, but if someone goes, go on then, draw it, show me, <laughs> yeah. you can't immediately do it. It's like this thing you have to sneak up on, like a butterfly, like you have to be really slow and yeah. careful. And so um, it was. we shot the whole thing like it was not a science fiction film. Like, we shot it all, like Hank, who was, you know, the editor was saying, kept warning me, I don't... I. Gareth, I've not done one of these big movies with loads of visual effects. You know that, right? You know, I don't do, I ha, I've never done this before. And I don't, and I was like, it's all right, don't worry, because we haven't, we get the whole thing, we're shooting everything for real. Like, we're only replacing things. Like, so everything, most things, we we removed something that was there. Yeah. Um, and replaced it. Like, even the vans, like, there's these cool sci fi vehicles. They're yeah. just like Ford Transit vans in, in the originally. And in the computer, we, tracked the van and replaced all the outer shell and deleted things and made it into like a sci-fi vehicle. It's so amazing it, wheels. Yeah, so it has all the, it bumps and there's, you know, we left the windows as normal. Everything, there was something for real in, in front of us. And that's, I think, what really helps the visual effects as well. I think that that's why you invest in the story and the characters so, so much immediately that you kind of, because you've done, you know, it's, it's embedded in truth and reality from what you've, from how you've shot it. Um, I could talk to you for hours. It's the quickest half hour in the world. Um, thank you so much. No, thank um, you. I can't wait to go see it again. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. Cheers. Oh, cheers, thanks, Edith. Thank thanks you. a lot. to the creator that's true love rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Gareth Edwards my huge thanks to Gareth for taking the time to talk to us the creator is on general release and all 91 view cinemas now and remember you can watch it for as little as £4.99 head to edithbowman.com 
to listen to every single episode of the podcast, including my previous conversation with Gareth about Rogue One and that Diego Luna one I mentioned as well, talking about Andor. Uh, say hello to us on socials, please. We would love that. We are at Soundtracking UK. And if you fancy sending me an email, then please do. Info at edithbowman.com. It could be about anything, whatever you fancy. So info at edithbowman.com if you want to get in touch. Now, we've got a bonus episode coming for you midweek this week, which I'm really excited to share with you um, in the shape of John Carney. He's a man who I think has almost kind of created his own genre of musical filmmaking because he doesn't make musicals in the kind of traditional sense of and I'm going to tell you what's happening next by singing a song. It's about original songs and needle drops being part of the narrative and kind of weaved into the story they're part of the story if I mention things like Sing Street or Once then you might know where uh, I'm coming from great filmmaker great storyteller and you can tell how much he cares about music especially since he used to be in a band called The Frames anyway John Carney director of Flora Sun a bonus episode coming for you uh, during the week and I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then (laughs) 